Let's take our Bibles, turn to the book of Hosea. Hosea will be at the end of chapter 2, and then uh, we'll move on to chapter 3 tonight. We'll, we'll begin in verse 14 of chapter 2. Hosea chapter 2. beginning in verse 14. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, will bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. I will give her her vineyards from there, and the valley of Achor as a door of hope. She shall sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. For I will take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. And that day I will make a covenant for them with the beast of the field, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground, bow and sword of battle, I will shatter from the earth to make them lie down safely." I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. It shall come to pass in that day that I will answer, says the Lord. I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, and with oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. Then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. I wonder how many of you recognize or remember the game that would have been played. I don't know that it happens these days. The game that would have been played in order to determine if someone loved you or not. You picked a flower, usually something like a daisy, right? And you would begin to pluck the flowers off, alternating the phrases, she loves me, she loves me not, right? And apparently... This would then foretell your romantic possibilities. Uh, Apparently, you get to the end, the very last petal. If you landed on, she loves me. Good news, right? If you landed on, she loves me not. Time to look elsewhere. Now, we recognize that largely was a children's game, right? Interestingly enough, I did find... That goes back to France more than 200 years ago. If you're curious about these things, you hear that and think, yeah, that sounds French, right? In other words, I mean, yeah, that kind of makes sense. That Maybe this is something that would come out of that particular culture. Now, you know, when we hear that little game, we kind of smile. Perhaps you remember that. Maybe, maybe even you did that. By the way, anybody here married to the person they did the game for? That'd be fascinating. All right. No. Okay. Well, that's a shame. No, that's kind of a kid's way of looking at love, right? 
It's kind of a fun, odd way of doing it. And we look at that and we think, well, surely, surely people don't think of love in those terms these days. I don't know. I think sometimes, oh, maybe it's not quite that childish, but I think perhaps at times it can be that fickle. It can certainly be that shallow. I think for a lot of folks, love is nothing more than something you fall into and fall out of. Love is largely a uh, uh, another way to talk about attraction, maybe affection, something that is emotionally driven for a lot of folks. And so because of that, I'm afraid there's a lot of people in the world, hopefully it's not folks in this room, but there are a lot of folks in the world that then have a hard time understanding not only love between humans, but then when the Bible talks about the love of God. I think a lot of folks just don't understand it. I mean, they may talk like they do. In fact, the expectations they often bring to the Bible when it comes to notions of God's love are troubling because what they expect love to be doesn't match up to what they find in the pages of Scripture. Case in point is texts like the Minor Prophets. In fact, this would be a primary place where a lot of folks would love to turn, and they would go to one of these prophets, and they would say, see, the God, this God that you say is such a God of love. He's not. He seems to be nothing more than a capricious kind of God who's just waiting to drop the hammer on you. That's the notion they may have of God. When they are somewhat exposed to language we find in the Old Testament. Now, I've been making the case all along, and this is the farthest thing from the truth, that in fact, the prophets say a lot about the love of God. Some of the most profound language, in particular in the Old Testament, about God's love is found in the prophets. And for Hosea to be the first of the twelve is fitting. Because I've argued for the last several sermons, all the sermons in Hosea we've had thus far, that the primary point of the book is not Israel's idolatry and God's judgment, but God's restorative love. That this book illustrates, demonstrates, puts right in front of a, of a list of books that the Jews referred to as the Book of the Twelve. One book, twelve parts, Hosea being the first one, because in Hosea we are presented with the fact that God by nature is love, and God is faithful to His covenant, faithful to His people, and even though they are engaged in radical rebellion, and God will indeed judge them, it is all for the purpose of redemption, restoration, and reconciliation. And so this has been our focus as we've turned our attention to the content of the book of Hosea, looking specifically at, at the, the simple idea that what we have in here is a portrait of an ever-faithful God in spite of what appears to be an almost ever-rebellious people, at least up, up to this point. And so Hosea presents us with this picture of what God's covenant, love, and faithfulness looks like. Now, we noted last week that when we, when we study the book of Hosea, Hosea goes in cycles. He takes us through the same basic ideas several times, expanding on them. And that, that cycle is really straightforward. 
The people have engaged in idolatry. God charges them with idolatry. God then promises to judge them for idolatry. And God then promises to restore them after judgment. This is the outline. All right? this, this is the, the fundamental outline of the book. And that is what is found for us in the first three chapters. Now, this cycle will be repeated then in chapters 4 through the end of the book. But we've been looking at it a little more carefully than we probably will as we go through the rest of it. The first three chapters really set us up for the heart of the story. It gives us the essence of what Hosea is all about, uh, why this message matters so much, uh, why it's even first. And so this, this is how Hosea, again, follows out his message. And last week we had turned to chapter 2 because chapter 1 basically follows this pattern. Chapter 1 comes out and tells Hosea, you're going to marry an unfaithful woman. That's going to be like my relationship with Israel, is what God says. And so we saw Hosea then marry this woman. She becomes unfaithful. She has kids with other lovers. And God says, and that's going to be what's going to happen with Israel. I, that she's no longer going to be my people. There's no longer going to be mercy. But then I will bring her back. <laughs> I will restore her. I will remember the covenant I made. She will be as numerous as the sands on the seashore. That will be a promise fulfilled to her. And then chapter 2 breaks open this cycle with even more detail. And so we noted at the beginning part of the chapter, God again charges them with unfaithfulness. He then promises them judgment. And we had just gotten to that third point at the end of last week. So as, as Hosea brings this chapter to a close, even though it's right in the middle of it, he, he again reasserts the, the, the restoration of the people of God. God in His love is going to restore them back to faithfulness. Now, keep in mind, all of this is mirrored by the relationship Hosea has had with Gomer. And so we noted this last week as, as Gomer went off after other lovers and she thought these other lovers were taking care of her. In fact, we find out it was Hosea taking care of her, going to these other homes wherever she was and making provision for a woman who is still his wife. And in similar kind of language, God is saying through this, I, I provided for you, Israel. I, I, I provided your, your wine and your, your grain and your, your shelter. I provided you with your clothing. You said the Baals gave it to you. You said the false gods gave it to you, but I did. And then God said, I'm going to cut it off. Indeed, that is what will happen when the Assyrians come in. God will no longer restrain uh, those who would attack his people, he will in essence remove his hand and they will feel the, the full weight of God's judgment come upon them from the Assyrians. And the, the Assyrians will in essence burn the thing to the ground. I mean, they, they will utterly destroy Israel. But again, that's not the end of the story. It, it, it's not a he loves me or he loves me not. The story is he loves me. <laughs> that is the story. God has a profound love for his people. So notice how this comes out in the text we just read. And, and then what we'll do, we'll, we'll kind of walk our way through some of these verses. And then we'll give our attention to what James Boyce called the greatest chapter in the Bible. And I'll kind of explain why, you know, why it is he said it that way. Chapter 3. 
But looking again there at chapter 2, so you notice how the, the tide turns, the language changes. He did the same thing in chapter 1 after all these harsh words about judgment. That's what chapter 2 has had, a lot of harsh words about judgment. If you notice verse 13, I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. I'm going to punish her for this. She went after other lovers. She forgot me. But then verse 14 transitions. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, I'll bring her into the wilderness and speak comfort to her. The language of allure is the language of wooing, by the way. It's just that. It's, it's, it's the language, it's the language be- between one pursuing a, a spouse. I mean, that, you know, that, that is, it is intimate language. I, I don't want to get into too much detail here, right? Because I'm afraid I'll turn red talking about it. Because, but that is what it is. It is intimate language here, what God's saying about Israel. I, I will woo her. I will allure her. I will go after her. I'll bring her into the wilderness. I'll speak comfort to her. I'll give her back vineyards. That place that was called the Valley of Achor, which was a location of great sin, uh, under Achan, and you'd have to go to the book of Joshua to get the details, just know this was a place of great failure and rebellion where because of it, Israel coming into the promised land loses, gets routed by Ai, a small nothing little town, and so it is, it is a place of humiliation. But God says, I'll turn it into a door of hope. She'll sing there. It'll be as in the days of her youth. Now that's profound language. Because this is going to come back up in the text again in just a moment. What does he mean when he, when he says she'll sing again and as in the days of her youth? What is God in essence promising? We can go back to when it was good. We can go back to when it was good. It's really sweet language, I think. And in other words, this, this is going to be like it was, like it should have been. The day will come when there will be a restoration of God's people unto Himself. He's going to allure them. He's going to comfort them. He's going to speak these words. Notice what it says then in verse 16. And it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. That sounds odd, doesn't it? Wouldn't it be okay for God to be called master? Well, the word master, there's kind of play on the word Baal. And so some of you may even have a textual note that indicates that. So in other words, what he's saying is you're you're no longer going to have that language in your mouth. The way you would have served Baal is not the way that you're going to serve me. We're going to have the relationship of husband-wife. You'll no longer call me master. You'll call me husband so then we have that great verse. I mentioned this last time, I think. <clears throat> I'll take from her mouth the names of the Baals, and they shall be remembered by their name no more. I mentioned last time, I think, that if you look at the history of Israel, by the time we get through all this, by the time... Assyria comes in and does their worst, and Babylon comes into the southern part and does their worst. They come back after they've been in exile. They re-inhabit the land, say, 400 B.C., late 500 B.C., and on. You never find Israel. Not one time. There's never a historical account 
where they ever worship an idol again. Never. It's never mentioned in that intertestamental period of time, right, between Malachi and Matthew. You get to the New Testament, how much stuff does Jesus fuss at Israel about? Anything? Do they f- does he fuss at the religious leaders about anything? Yeah, yeah, if you're wondering, go back and read it, all right, because there's a lot. Does he ever say anything positive to the religious leaders? I don't think so. What does he never accuse them of? Worshipping Baal. Never. They don't reference him. <clears throat> so I think there's every evidence this is, this is what he's talking about. I, I will bring them back. I will woo them back into a relationship with me. And then notice what it says in verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice and loving kindness and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Again, what is that language of betrothal? It is language of going back. We can go back and do this over again. We, we can go back to the days of the engagement. We can go back to the days when it was intimate and meaningful, when we had, when we had deep relationship, when, when you loved me and you served me. We can, go, we can go back to that. Now, I will say this, that there could be a lot, there could be a variety of interpretations when it comes to when some of this will take place. I think there is a feature of this, of course, that is fulfilled in the gospel. I mean, this, this is the promise of the gospel that is fulfilled when, when, when Christ saves us and the church is formed and, and there, there is a fulfillment of these promises of a people of God faithful to Him. But I, I also think some of this points us to the future, to God's final work with Israel, uh, to what will be a final work in that day when God will fulfill His promises to the nation. All right, so there, there's a bit of a double fulfillment in this. Uh, n- nonetheless, this is the promise that God is making. God will restore the people to Himself. <clears throat> Sorry, can somebody give me some water? Wow, how many people jumped? Oh, thank you. Look at that. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Bill. You got up first. I saw it. All right? I'll give you credit for getting up first. Just for the record, this happens when I get too hot. All right. Okay. I'm going to put that in. Amen. Thank you. All right. Okay. Because I heard a lot for the last couple of weeks about it being too cold, but I can tell you this is what happens when it gets too hot. All right. So verse 21, then he goes on to make the promise, It shall come to pass on that day, I will answer, says the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth. The earth shall answer with grain, with new wine, with oil. Now notice this. Notice how everything that was related to judgment in chapter 1 is now reversed. They shall answer Jezreel. Now you may have to go back and read this, but who is Jezreel? That was the first kid. And the name Jezreel means scattered. And originally, God named, told him to name the first kid Jezreel because God was going to scatter the nation. But now notice how this comes back, and rather than it being negative, makes it positive. They shall answer Jezreel, then I will sow her for myself in the earth. Now this is language of abundance. 
I will will scatter her like seed that will find fertile soil and will grow and prosper again. And if you remember, the next child was named No Mercy. And then he says, And I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who are not my people, You are my people. And they shall say, You are my God. So again, the promise that we have here, the cycle that we have in Hosea, is the cycle of charges, judgment, and restoration. And so we have this promise of restoration to come. And I do want to stress this. I'm going to stress it again in just a few minutes. But notice how verse 14, who is the one doing the work? It's God. Israel does not initiate anything. God does. God's the one who says, I will go to her and restore her. There's no meeting halfway. There, there's, there's no Israel deciding, ah, this isn't working for me anymore. And so we're going to go back to God. God is the one who initiates this. In other words, the restoration of the relationship comes under God's sovereign grace. All right, so let's move on now to chapter 3, because now here's, here's what Hosea is going to do. He's going to illustrate this, or God's going to illustrate this, this whole cycle by coming back to the story of Hosea and Gomer. So he's already alluded to this story, but now chapter 3, it's only five verses. Five verses. And much of it you read. In fact, let, let's just do that. If you haven't read it yet, here we go. Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man so too will I be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter day. All right, so one of the greatest Bible teachers in the 20th century, James Boyce. I've encouraged you, if you'd like, to read his, I think it's two-volume commentary on the Minor Prophets. Some of you have bought it and been reading it. Uh, It's a good recommendation, right, to those of you who've done it, yeah? Okay, all right. So I'd commend it to you. One of the greatest interpreters of the Bible in the 20th century said, this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. How many of you are now thinking, am I missing something, right? Like, would you read that chapter and think, this is better than Psalm 23? This is better than John chapter 3? This is better than Revelation 21? This? This 
This is better than, than John 20 and the resurrection. This, this chapter? Now, obviously, when he says something like that, it is a bit of hyperbole. In other words, he recognizes all the God's Word is his Word, all of it's you know, important and inerrant and infallible. The reason he says that is because he argues that chapter 3 is as profound an illustration of the gospel as anywhere else in the Bible, aside from the stories of Christ himself. Nowhere do we have a better portrait of the gospel. God's love, my sin, Christ's redemption. Nowhere do we have a better portrait of it than in these five verses. And really, this is how the chapter functions. It functions as an illustration, a sermon illustration of sorts. God had already said, Hosea, your relationship with Gomer is going to illustrate my relationship with Israel. And and so, after giving once again this cycle of how things are going to happen, now God sends Hosea on the third part of the trip. We can assume at this point, Hosea has stopped providing for Gomer. We noted that in chapter 2. He was providing for her. We can assume that's not happening anymore. Because as chapter 3 opens, Gomer is now a slave. There are no more lovers for her. Absolutely destitute. She is at the bottom of the social ladder. She's, that's the last rung of the ladder. There was a time when she probably thought much of her beauty. There was a time when others probably thought much of her beauty. I mean, one time here was a woman who was married to a prophet of God. And now, as, as this chapter opens, Gomer is probably down in the city center. She's been placed on the auction block. As naked as the day she was born. To be sold like common livestock. That, that's where Gomer is. You want to talk about somebody who's fallen and hitting rock bottom? That's Gomer. God then uses this. This is the moment. Now she's reached the bottom. This is the moment where God is now going to bring out the profound illustration of His love by using Hosea to go after Gomer. And so in chapter 3, we have a vivid picture for us of the power of God's redemptive and restorative love, not only for Israel, but also for the gospel. And so we're going to take a look at four features of this. Obviously, we won't get through all four, all right? So, four features of this, love. And if you want to fill in some notes, you know, there's, there's there's some more blanks here to fill in in the outline that I have given to you. Four features of God's love that's illustrated here in chapter 3. Number one, this chapter illustrates for us an initiating love. It illustrates for us an initiating love. Kind of like what I said for verse 14 of chapter 2, this is also going to remind us that the nature of this relationship that we have with God is not a 50-50 proposition. It's not that I first make an effort and God responds to it. 
The nature of my relationship with God is possible because God comes after me. The fact that Israel is going to be restored is not because Israel, in and of her sense, comes to her senses and says, now we're going to go, you know, now we're going to finally be right with God. It is because God initiates the work. God goes after her. And this is illustrated. Notice what it says in verse 1. Then the Lord said to me, meaning Hosea, go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. Again, keep in mind, Hosea is not a metaphor. This is not a story. This is not a parable. Hosea was a real guy who lived in a real period of time, who married a real woman, who became a real temple prostitute who had children with other men. Again, it's it's not symbolic. I mean, it is, but it's, it's a real story. And what does God come to Hosea and say? Go again and love this woman. And, and note... Note the nuance of the, the, the use of the word love. It's, it's the word love in, in English, but they're obviously different kinds. You go again and love a woman. That use of the word love there, from Hosea's perspective, this is not about attraction, this is not about affection, this is not about romance, this is unconditional love. This is a love that says I'm going to love because love is the thing, the right thing to do. It is what I am called to do. And that's not to say he didn't have other, you know, emotional notions of love for Gomer. But I, I don't know. I, I mean, I've, I've known some folks who, after enough infidelity and unfaithfulness, you know, not to quote an old song, some of you will get stuck in your head now, but you can lose that love and feeling, right? Okay? I mean, you can. God says, go and love her. Go and love her. In other words, you are going to demonstrate unconditional love to her in spite of her being described as a woman who is loved by a lover. In other words, she's one who's committed adultery. She's one who is engaged in fleshly love. He's telling Hosea, you go and demonstrate faithful love. These are different kinds of the use of the word. And then he brings out the illustration. Just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel. Hosea, you're going to love Gomer just like I love Israel. You are going to be faithful to her. You are going to go after her. You are going to redeem and restore her. That's what I'm going to do with Israel in spite of the fact. That last phrase of verse 1. Who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. That sound weird to anybody else? It's a little strange, right? Like, what does God have against little Debbies, right? I mean, what's the big deal? Ra- I mean, it's not my favorite kind, but I mean, what's the big deal about a raisin cake? And how, how, how is this even a thing, right? I mean, how is this even a part of the... Why, why is that? What is, why is that? That's where God goes to. It's not mentioned... I don't know if it's ever mentioned again in any other context. It is a, it is a strange little comment. Now, you can already get some idea of what he's talking about. This has something to do with paganism, right? It has something to do with the worship of the Baals, of these false gods. I'm going to go love Israel who has looked to other gods. In other words, it's, it's, it's sharing their adultery, their spiritual unfaithfulness. And how is, how is that illustrated? They have a love for the raisin cakes of the pagans. The New King James Version 
puts the phrase of the pagans in italics. And, I, and some of you may have translations that say it even different, dif- differently than that. So th- that, is, that is the translator cluing me in on something. The phrase, raisin cakes of the pagans, the of the pagans, isn't in the original text. It's not in the Hebrew. That is a translator telling me the way to understand the reference to the raisin cakes is in regard to the pagans. It appears that raisin cakes were used in worship of the Baals. In particular, in the prostitution area, it's in particular. I felt them to be an aphrodisiac. The raisins. So what they would do is they would, they would take these raisins, they would take grapes, they would dry them, they'd press them together. H- how did they use them? We don't, I don't know. I don't know. All right? I don't want to know. I don't know how they used them, but I do know that is the context of it. This was part of pagan worship. It was part of expressing your love and devotion and adoration to the false god. And, and I think it's significant that, that the particular thing God points to is something that is so small and insignificant and unworthy of such devotion, right? In other words, put it, put it this way. What is it that Israel is spurning the love of God for? Raisin cakes. Raisin cakes. We'd rather have raisin cakes than the love of God. This is what they turned their back on. And for, they did, they did it for these silly little things, for these silly little gods. By the way, I think that is a striking image. And I know we might think, foolish Israelites. Listen, church, you have often spurned the love of God for something less worthy of your affection. Or maybe I'm the only one in the room who's done it. The truth is, the world is full of raisin cakes, right? It's full of it. It's full of all kinds of things that would draw our affection and our attention away from God. There are all kinds of ways we have turned our back, we have spurned the love of God, and we've gone after raisin cakes. It's all too easy. That's why the New Testament warns us about Beware of the, the love of the world. Do not love the world or the things of the world. Be, be careful about these things that appeal to the flesh and your own pride. This is exactly what happened to Israel. She found herself pursuing these other gods. And this, isn't this what happened to Gomer too, right? I mean, here Gomer went after these other lovers. Were they better people than Hosea? I mean, here was a man who got direct revelation from God. I don't know about you, but that'd be a handy guy to know, right? Like God is literally audibly speaking to Hosea. I'd stick with that. Yet what does she do? She goes after others. So this, this again, is the illustration. And what, what, what is profound here, what I think is significant, what I think is really emphasized, is in both cases, whether Hosea to Gomer or God to Israel, who is initiating this? Who is doing this work? It's it's God who's doing this. It's God who is going after one who is not worth going after. Right? I mean, from one perspective. God is the one going after. I mean, you think about that from the case of Hosea and Gomer. 
Now, you don't, I'm not going to ask you to raise a hand, but who here is going after Gomer? Who here is doing that? Or, you know, Gomer or Homer. All right, you can put it around, all right? Let's say, just for the sake of the argument, ladies, okay? If it's the other way around, I mean, who's, who's, who's going after that spouse? Who? It, it, it is a striking image. No one is, right? But this, yet this is the nature of God's love. God initiates this. And this is critical to understanding the gospel itself. People are saved by the gospel not because we express some love to God and then God reciprocates with love for us. It is not because there is some spark in us that God sees that then God manipulates and goes after. The reason God loves us, are you ready for this? The reason God loves us because he just decided to. Period. That's it. The reason he loves us is because he decided to. He initiated this. He came after us. Say, Pastor, how do you know this is true? Well, I'm not the only one who says it. I mean, look there. It's it's in in your notes. This this is an essential principle in the book of First John, his letter, he says this, two verses. First John 4.10, he makes it plain. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And then verse 19 goes on to state, We love because He first loved us. Again, it is, it is the first part of the gospel. He does the initiating work. I could have also put another pretty well-known verse. You may recognize it. John (laughs) 3.16. For God so loved the world, because once they showed themselves to be lovely, He then sent His one and... Is that right? Is that how that verse goes? Is that the new Scott Gleason translation? All right. No, it's not. It's not how the verse goes. God so loved the world that he, He sent. He sent His only begotten Son. In other words, it's initiated by God. God demonstrated His love for us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died. This is the essence of the gospel. The gospel is initiated by God. It is God's sovereign work and domain. Salvation comes from the hand of God to us. Now, next time, and it'll be some time, all right? But I'm going to give you an assignment in between. How about that? All right? This phrase here, so you, you go do, you're going to have to do some Bible study. We'll see if uh, we come up with the same thing. Verse 2, I'm thinking of the way I want to put the question. Why would I agree with James Boyce and argue that a verse like verse 2 is the greatest illustration of redemption in the Bible? Verse 2. Why is that such a profound illustration of how God redeems people? To give you a little bit of heads up, you're going to need to do some research on 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. Good luck with that. Say that again? Okay. Why would verse 2 stand as one of the greatest illustrations of redemption. By illustrations, I mean redemption 
of the gospel. Why does that verse so richly illustrate redemption in Christ? That what Homer, I mean, what, what Hosea does here for Gomer uh, in in you know, it's, it's, you can read it. You can tell the language of redemption's in there because he said, "I bought her." Right. So this is language of redemption. To to redeem is to is to buy back something. So why why is this such a profound picture of redemption? Why would one of the greatest New Testament in particular, but why would one of the greatest Bible scholars of the twentieth century, maybe even the history of the church, why would one of the greatest interpreters of the Bible? say this is such a profound illustration of the gospel. Why would he say that? So what, what is it? And what is it about the shekels and the barley that make it so profound? All right, so we'll, we'll get to that uh, the next time we're together. Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you again for gathering us. We're grateful for uh, this first day of the week. Lord, though we recognize that many uh, around us uh, see this day as ending a week, we recognize it begins it. Because we begin our week in you and with one another, centering our hearts and minds on your greatness and your goodness to us in the gospel. We thank you, Father, for how you have saved us in Christ and how that gives us security, how we have fellowship with you. And we know, God, that you then have laid out a week before us. So, God, we enter it in faith and obedience to you. We pray, God, that we have taken advantage of this day, and we, we have attuned our minds and hearts to Your Word. And Father, we want to live that out. And so God, we pray that You would use us in the week to come. May we walk in wisdom and obedience, faithfulness to You, and that You would use us all for Your glory. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.